You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 107, The Will of the Emperor. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to invite you once again to join us on Patreon. There seems to be a lot of interest in daily life within the Grande Armée. In past dispatches, we've talked about the food they ate, their sleeping conditions, their uniforms, and in the most recent installment, what games they played and how they corresponded with home. If you'd like to learn more about what it was like to be a soldier in Napoleon's army, or any of the other dozens of topics we've covered on the dispatches, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon, and you can get hours of bonus content for just $2 a month. For those of you who have already signed up, thank you for your support, and for all the excellent questions. Anyway, we left off last time with a discussion of art under the First Empire. This was a golden age for painting and sculpture, which Bonaparte encouraged with official policy and patronage and used to his political advantage. We've talked a lot in the past few episodes about what Napoleon and his government did with their power, but we haven't talked very much about how the regime actually functioned, what was the nature of Napoleonic rule, and on a purely practical level, how could one man assert his will over half a continent? We haven't talked at any length about the structure of the French government since all the way back in episode 54, when we discussed the new Constitution of Year 8, ushered in after the coup of 18 Brumaire, which first brought Napoleon to power back in 1799, or Year 8 of the Republic as it was then still officially known. Thinking back to our episodes on the coup, you might remember Emmanuel Siez, the nominal leader of the plot, who Bonaparte was able to sideline almost immediately with very little effort. Despite his prodigious skills as a writer and thinker, C.S. had proved to be a somewhat pathetic figure on the national political stage. He stuck around long enough to help write the new constitution, but once that task was completed, he was of limited usefulness, and Bonaparte ushered him to the exit. Ironically, years after the man himself was forced off the stage, the constitution he helped write was still going strong. In the early episodes of the show, almost every time we checked in with French politics, there was an entirely new system to explain. New players, new institutions and structures, and sometimes entirely new ideologies and philosophies. Now, almost ten years after Napoleon's coup, there is a lot more continuity than change. In 1799, the leading figure in the government was First Consul Bonaparte. Ten years later, the leading figure in the government was Emperor Napoleon. As we discussed in our episodes on the coronation, this was not much more than a change in title. 
The old constitution remained in force. All they had really done was change the words First Consul to the word Emperor. Back in 1799, First Consul Bonaparte's deputy was the Second Consul, Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès. Ten years later, the Emperor's right-hand man was the Arch-Chancellor of the Empire, Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès. The powerful, malevolent police minister, Joseph Fouché, remained at his post as well. As we discussed in a recent episode, Talleyrand had stepped down as foreign minister, but he retained his position on the Council of State and remained a powerful figure. There had been turnover, of course. Senior government officials had retired or been dismissed, but there had been no mass purges, imprisonments, or executions of senior politicians, as had become almost routine during the Revolution. The Constitution had not remained totally static. In fact, it was amended fairly frequently under Napoleon's government, 30 times between the coup of Brumaire and his final downfall, which works out to about twice a year. To put that in perspective, the American Constitution has been amended just 27 times in 234 years, although in fairness, the amendment process in the U.S. is much more cumbersome by design. So it would definitely not be accurate to say nothing changed between the Brumaire coup and Napoleon's exile, but compared to the constant, dramatic upheavals of the 1790s, Napoleonic France was a paragon of stability and continuity. On paper, the country was a constitutional monarchy, ruled by the emperor who was bound to act within the law, with a legislature elected by a tiered system of universal male suffrage. There were originally three houses to the legislature, the tribunate and the legislative corps as the lower houses, and the senate as the upper house. As we've discussed in past episodes, the tribunate was dissolved in 1807, leaving France with the more typical setup of a single lower house and a single upper house. However, the legislature was almost entirely toothless. Bonaparte didn't like being second-guessed by anyone, and that included branches of his own government. Almost as soon as he took office, he began working to sideline the legislature. We've already discussed his biggest clash with the tribunes, after they unexpectedly voted down the first draft of the Napoleonic Code in 1804. This had probably helped seal their fate, but Napoleon hadn't exactly been eager to work with them before this incident. By the end of 1804, Napoleon told his Council of State, quote, The government is no longer a direct product, as it once was, of the legislature. Its ties with it are distant. End quote. Bonaparte was hailing this as a positive development. Today, regimes that are not beholden to an elected legislature are generally considered tyrannical. Napoleon and his supporters had a different view. To their minds, most of the worst failures and excesses of the revolution had a common source, an out-of-control, over-mighty legislature. They saw a powerful legislative branch as a hallmark of tyranny, not a safeguard against it. This is no longer really a common view, and it is mostly dismissed by modern historians. But looking back over the course of the revolution, you can see why they might have thought so. The most unstable and radical periods of the 1790s largely corresponded with periods in which the executive branch of government was weak or non-existent, and the country was ruled by the legislature. Remember, Robespierre had never been prime minister or president or chancellor of France. We usually don't refer to him by any official title, but as the de facto leader of the country, because, under the law, he had only ever been just one member of a particularly powerful parliamentary committee. 
Napoleon and his supporters viewed the instability and radicalism of the revolution as a painful but necessary process, like an experimental surgical procedure that had nearly killed the patient but cured the disease. Now that France was healthy again, the time had come for strong central authority to be reasserted. Napoleon never claimed to seek power for its own sake. He extolled the virtues of a strong executive from a detached philosophical standpoint. Quote, the great order that governs the entire world must govern each part of the world. Like the sun, the government is at the center of society. The many diverse institutions must trace their orbit around it, and they must never stray from it. The government must regulate the combinations of each of them in such a manner that they ensure the general harmony. Nothing is left to chance in the system of the world. In the system of societies, nothing must depend on the whims of individuals. End quote. That probably sounds pretty chilling from a modern perspective. Most of us today live in highly individualistic societies, and most of us grew up in the shadow of the bloody early and mid-20th century, which saw almost unbelievable abuses of individual rights by authoritarian states and political movements. People of Napoleon's era did not have that same perspective. In fact, many of them seem to have taken the opposite lesson from their own recent history, that personal freedom, democracy, and social equality might have had their merits, but were deadly dangerous, and had to be approached with extreme caution. Napoleon and his supporters told the people of France that they could provide a moderating influence on the radicalism of the revolution, impose harmony on a society that would otherwise trend towards chaos. After a decade of violence and instability, many were willing to listen. With all that said, some scholars find any discussion of the philosophical underpinnings of Napoleon's government totally pointless. To them, Bonaparte was simply a power monger, nothing more, the type of man who would have said anything to justify his own domination over the political system. After all, almost every tyrant in history has dreamed up some kind of intellectual pretext for their abuses of power. Perhaps that's true, but whether he was sincere or not, there's no question that Napoleon was tapping into a genuine desire for strong executive authority, held by many within France. In the early days of his regime, even many prominent liberals agreed with this turn towards an authoritarian executive. The great writer and politician Benjamin Constant wrote an essay called, quote, On the Strength of the Current Government and the Need to Rally Behind It, end quote. The title alone should give you a clear idea of his views at the time, although, as we've discussed in past episodes, he would eventually denounce Napoleon. So, in practical terms, how did all this work? Even in a dictatorship, it's impossible for one person to run an entire country. Obviously, Napoleon was not delegating anything remotely important to the legislature. So, who was helping him shoulder the burden? Who was actually doing the work of governance? The short answer is the Council of State. We've discussed this institution in past episodes. The closest analogy in Anglo-American politics would be the cabinet. Just like a cabinet, the heads of all the ministries and executive branch agencies were members, but it was much larger than the cabinets of British prime ministers or American presidents, including eminent politicians, current and former senior civil servants, and experts in various relevant fields. Some of these people were permanent members, others were so-called extraordinary members, who were brought onto the council on a temporary basis due to their expertise on some particular topic under discussion. There were usually around 40 or 50 councillors at any given moment. 
The Council of State didn't really function as a united body. Members would be called in depending on their duties and areas of expertise. For instance, if the council was debating a military matter, it would probably involve the Minister of War, the Minister of the Navy and the Colonies, and the Minister of War Administration, as well as various experts in military affairs and heads of smaller executive agencies that dealt with the military. But the foreign minister or the finance minister might not be included, unless the topic somehow overlapped with their areas of expertise. Napoleon himself presided over these meetings when he was in Paris. When he was not, Cambasarez took over, usually following the emperor's instructions sent by letter. As we've discussed, Napoleon did not enjoy having his decisions second-guessed by anyone, and had a hard time accepting criticism. However, discussions within the Council of State were relatively free. The proceedings were secret, and thus nothing said within the Council could ever embarrass the Emperor. And these were men whose opinions Napoleon trusted, so the councillors were allowed to speak their minds, within reason. That said, the Emperor was in control of the invite list, so although the members were allowed to speak freely, they didn't have any choice over who was doing the talking. This allowed Napoleon to steer the direction of the Council of State without having to strong-arm the individual members. If he knew the topic of a meeting was controversial, he could simply stack the invite list with councillors who agreed with his position. It's hard to generalize about the councillors. Most of them had experience of politics and or the civil service, although some had risen to prominence in other fields. Some were former military officers, although not as many as you might think, given Napoleon's background. Most were ex-revolutionaries, although, as we've discussed in past episodes, Bonaparte was not particularly concerned with ideology. You could find former leftists and former conservatives, as well as plenty of moderates. There were even a few ex-royalists. Some were not even French. At its height, the empire ruled over many different nations, and Napoleon wanted them represented on the council as well. Depending on the year and the subject of the meeting, you could find Italians, Dutchmen, and Germans. The wild years of the revolution had thrown up all kinds of colorful characters. Charismatic orators, romantic idealists, bloodthirsty villains, devious schemers, and original, eccentric freethinkers. The political elite of the Napoleonic era were a stark contrast. To be blunt, the councillors of state were mostly a boring bunch. When it came to politics and administration, Napoleon preferred to rely on steady men, who were deliberate and analytical by nature. He was suspicious of outsized characters, both by disposition and because he did not want to be upstaged or see his trusted lieutenants become rivals for power. These were remarkable people. They were generally highly intelligent, competent and experienced in their fields, and diligent workers. However, few of them really stand out as personalities. None left any discernible mark on the public consciousness. When we think about the Napoleonic elite, we tend to gravitate towards the marshals and generals, people who, broadly speaking, tended toward flamboyant, audacious, prima donna behavior. The people Napoleon trusted to run the government were almost the polar opposite. They were technocrats, institution men, slow and steady, workhorses, not show ponies. Under the Constitution, the Council of State had the right to propose legislation. Technically, it would then be debated in the legislature, but this quickly proved to be nothing more than a formality. Everyone knew the Council of State was where the action really was. 
Once the councillors settled on a draft statute and it got its rubber stamps from the legislature, it would be passed along to Napoleon, who had the final power to either sign it into law or reject it. This, too, was mostly a formality, since Napoleon himself was in charge of the Council of State, and they rarely did anything without his approval, especially something as significant as proposing new legislation. The Council also had some functions similar to a court of law, ruling on jurisdictional disputes between different government bodies, and settling disagreements between individuals and the civil service. The council was also responsible for administering the bureaucracy, the ministries, and other institutions of the executive branch of government. This was the true seat of power within Napoleonic France, the primary tool the emperor used to exert his will over the empire. As you can see, almost all functions of the government were concentrated within the executive branch. The legislature barely even existed. It was a useless appendage, not really necessary to the everyday business of governance. Under the Constitution, the legislative process was mostly a closed loop that started and ended at Napoleon's desk. This top-down style of administration extended all the way down to the lowest levels of local government. We haven't talked much about local government over the course of this show, but if you think back to our very early episodes, you'll recall that under the old regime, France had been divided into all kinds of different subnational entities, mostly based on arbitrary old feudal borders. Some of these provinces were tiny, others were big enough that they probably could have been viable as independent countries. Each had its own laws and its own unique, and usually very complicated, legal relationship with the royal government. Basically everyone who interacted with this system hated it. It was confusing and inefficient, and provided basically no benefit to anyone. However, the politics of the old regime had been too sclerotic to do anything about it. Naturally, creating a rational system of local administration was a top priority for the revolutionaries. In 1790, the National Assembly abolished the old provinces in favor of a new system of departments. Each department would be roughly the same size, relatively small, designed so the local capital would be no more than a day's ride away from anywhere within the department. The boundaries were drawn based on geography alone not taking into account tradition or culture. At first, this was unpopular with some. Administrative reforms on this scale are bound to involve stepping on a few toes. But the departmental system proved so efficient that its critics were soon silenced. All the various regimes and factions of the revolution supported the new system. Even after the fall of Napoleon and the restoration of the old regime, the royal government couldn't bring itself to get rid of the departments. They were simply too useful. Every subsequent French government has agreed. This system remains in place today, albeit with some reforms and modifications. Under the First Empire, the most powerful official in every department was the prefect, another title borrowed from ancient Rome. The prefect was the official local representative of the imperial government, empowered to act under certain circumstances in the name of the emperor. The departmental prefects were appointed by Napoleon himself. At the height of the empire, there were 130 departments in France, and it seems the emperor really did take the time to personally choose all 130 prefects. The prefects, in turn, appointed the mayors of most cities and towns. So this really was a top-down system. 
The mayor of the smallest village in France was at the bottom of a direct chain of authority that led up through his local prefect and the ranks of the interior ministry to the Council of State and the Emperor. Jean-Antoine Chaptal, who served as Minister of the Interior, described it this way, quote, The chain of execution descends without interruption from the minister to the administration and transmits the law and orders of government into the farthest ramifications of the social order with the speed of electric fluid, end quote. I think you can tell from some of that unusual phrasing that Chaptal was also a scientist. Two episodes ago, I said that Napoleon wanted to run the whole country from Paris. Obviously, that's not literally true. Local officials did have latitude to handle many local matters themselves. But even village mayors were appointees of the central government, members of the executive branch. It might be an understatement to call this strong central government. There was hardly any non-central government. The prefects were the front line of the Napoleonic regime. They stood at the point where national policy, set in Paris, came into contact with the people it governed. A good prefect would be expected to maintain, and if possible, expand, the streams of tax money and army recruits bound for Paris, provide reports and data to the interior ministry, and, perhaps most importantly, settle any local problems before they became national problems. In return, he got his salary and the prestige of his office, obviously, and wide-ranging powers within his department. Napoleon referred to the prefects as little emperors. And of course, the prefects were offered the same promises of reward for good service that were dangled in front of everyone in Napoleonic France. Money, titles, medals, properties, and official honors. And I'm sure this went unsaid, but as the top political figure in his local area, and main link between the local administration and the central government, the prefect would have a lot of juicy patronage to dole out, and a lot of opportunities to use his power to enrich himself or improve his political standing. Still, the regime worked hard to at least provide the pretense of effective, honest governance. And generally speaking, the administration of Napoleonic France was quite competent and formidable, maybe not by our standards, but certainly compared to what was going on in the rest of the world at the time. One prefect put it this way, quote, for any people, it is only by administration that a government can be loved. As goes the administration, so goes the people administered. End quote. It's probably easiest to imagine Napoleon's government as a huge pyramid, with the emperor at the top and local officials at the bottom. Reports and data traveled up the pyramid, only the most important making it all the way to the very top, and orders traveled down. This system was perfectly suited to Napoleon's character. As we've discussed in many past episodes, he loved to micromanage. But he also had a lot on his plate, and was away from the capital quite often, sometimes for extended periods of time. This tiered, hierarchical system allowed the emperor to choose his level of involvement on any given matter. If he didn't want to bother with something, he could just sign off on the recommendation of the Council of State or the relevant minister and be done with it. But if he wanted to dig deeper on something, he could read the minutes of the meetings that had taken place on the topic before it reached his desk, and get the reports made by officials lower down on the chain of command. We talked last episode about David's famous painting of Napoleon in his study at the Tuileries. Well, this is the type of thing you can imagine him working on, poring over reports from his subordinates and the minutes of meetings he could not attend 
getting into the weeds on some issue that caught his attention. I'd imagine the Emperor's remarkable work ethic and obsessive attention to detail helped keep this vast pyramid of the Napoleonic government working effectively. Even the officials at the very bottom knew that nothing was beneath Napoleon's notice. Whatever they were working on, no matter how insignificant, there was always some small chance it would cross the Emperor's desk. If he liked what he saw, the rewards could be considerable. If he felt your work was shoddy or your behavior was unbecoming of a member of his government, God help you. We actually know quite a lot about Napoleon's daily routine and work habits. Two men who served as his personal secretary wrote memoirs, Claude-François de Meneval and Louis-Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne, and both wrote extensively about what it was like to work alongside Napoleon. On a typical day when he was present in the capital, the emperor's secretary woke him up at seven in the morning, although apparently sometimes Napoleon waved him off and slept in. Once he was up, he sat down by the fire, drank a cup of tea, and read the newspapers. He was very fastidious about his personal hygiene. Unlike many Europeans of this era, he bathed, brushed his teeth, and shaved every day whenever possible. He shaved himself rather than having a servant do it for him, which was unusual for a man of his station. He liked baths, and often spent over an hour in the tub, with his servants occasionally refreshing the water to keep it hot. Napoleon was not idle during this time. Throughout his morning routine, he always had a secretary reading him reports or newspaper articles. Next, he liberally applied cologne. Napoleon loved cologne. He had a standing order for 50 bottles a month, although it's worth mentioning that in the early 19th century, cologne was a lot weaker than the stuff we have today. Finally, Napoleon's personal valet dressed him, and the emperor was ready to face the day. Apparently, this morning routine sometimes lasted over two hours, but with his secretary reading to him the whole time, he would begin work at around 9 o'clock, fully informed on all the important news of the day. Any significant meetings were usually scheduled for the morning. If there was time, he also sometimes had conversations with his close advisors, his brother Joseph, his wife, or one of his few friends. His first real meal of the day was lunch. Those familiar with Napoleon's eating habits often say he preferred simple food. Although, when you look at what he actually ate, I think they meant simple in contrast to the sumptuous multi-course feasts that were typically served to other sovereigns. We talked about Napoleon's eating and drinking habits at length in our bonus episodes, Dispatch 3 if you're curious. Sometimes the emperor worked through lunch. Sometimes he took it with friends or with his wife. Most sources agree he tended to wolf down his food so he could get back to business. Apparently, his lunch breaks were sometimes as short as 15 minutes. After lunch, he would typically spend the rest of the day locked away in his office, reading reports and letters, dictating correspondence, and drafting orders. He was famous for his ability to dictate to multiple secretaries simultaneously, calling out sentences one at a time without losing his place. His personal secretary, Meneval, would later recall, quote, Napoleon would deal with, in turn, at one sitting, matters related to war, to diplomacy, to finance, to commerce, to public works, and so on, and rested from one kind of work by engaging in another. With him, every branch of the government was the object of a special, complete, and sustained attention. No confusion of ideas, no fatigue, and no desire to shorten the hours of labor ever making themselves felt. 
Napoleon used to explain the clearness of his mind and his faculty of being able, at will, to prolong his work to extreme limits by saying that the various subjects were arranged in his head as though in a cupboard. When I want to interrupt one piece of work, he used to say, I close the drawer in which it is and open another. The two pieces of business never get mixed up together and never trouble or tire me. When I want to go to bed, I close up all the drawers and then I am ready to go off to sleep. End quote. The emperor's office was as well organized as his mind. He had a library of information at his fingertips, reams of reports, all prepared in a uniform format, and carefully filed and indexed according to a rational system. Much of this information was military. He had the location and strength of every French army unit, right down to the battalions of every regiment, and every French naval vessel across the whole empire, along with estimates of the locations and strengths of enemy units, right in his office, where they could be retrieved at a moment's notice. The Interior Ministry produced an absolutely incredible amount of data as well, particularly related to commerce and production, which was used in setting national economic policy. Interior Minister Jean-Pierre de Montalivet put it this way, quote, The center must know whatever is being done, for good or ill. We must have analyses that show what is done or not done on every matter, and the way in which things are done in different places and at different times. End quote. Locked away in his office with his secretaries and reports, Napoleon was truly in his element. The only place he seemed more at home was on the battlefield. He seems to have taken genuine pleasure in work, especially in the type of work most people would consider drudgery. His personal secretary, Meneval, put it this way quote, the emperor always had a strange pleasure in receiving reports. He used to read through them with delight, and would say that no work of science or literature ever gave him so much pleasure. End quote. As emperor of France, Napoleon often had dinners, parties, or state functions to attend in the evening. When that was not the case, he often took a short dinner break and then carried right on working, sometimes quite late into the night. As I've mentioned in past episodes, Bonaparte's sleeping habits were bizarre. Sometimes he turned in at a normal time and then slept through the night, but that seems to have been the exception, not the rule. He was well known for working into the wee hours of the morning, then waking up at seven after only a few hours rest. Other nights, he went to bed early, then rose again in the middle of the night to squeeze in a few more hours' work, before returning to bed for a brief nap before dawn. Those who worked in the emperor's service were expected to keep these same hours. If a secretary approached him with some task, it was not uncommon for him to say something like, Come back at four in the morning and we'll work on it. Apparently he was fond of eating ice cream during these late-night working sessions. Napoleon liked to encourage the idea that he only rarely slept, constantly vigilant, constantly working for the public interest too great a man to be bothered by the mundane, human need to rest. However, it seems he always compensated for these late nights by napping during the day. His former secretary Bourrienne estimated that he actually got about seven hours of sleep a day, which is perfectly normal. He was just unusual in that he could sleep at will, at any time, in any place, and thus didn't need some kind of set bedtime routine. As was his habit, he did fudge the truth on this. Apparently, he also left candles burning in his office when he went to sleep to encourage people to believe he was still at work. And, as we discussed last episode, he encouraged artists to portray this side of his character. 
He wanted the people of France to think of him as an unstoppable workhorse. He was fond of telling people that he had worked 16 hours a day, every day, ever since he was a cadet in military school. Obviously, that's impossible. We know from his secretaries that even Napoleon got burned out and took breaks, sometimes for days at a time. However, this is a case where the public image is relatively true to life. Those who knew Napoleon often commented on his almost inhuman work ethic. The politician Pierre-Louis Roederer worked with Napoleon closely from the very beginning of his rule, and he put it this way, quote, What characterizes the spirit of Bonaparte is the strength and constancy of his attention. He can work for 18 hours at a stretch, on one or several subjects. I never saw him tired. I never saw him lacking competence, even when weary in body, even when violently exercised, even when angry. I never saw him distracted from one matter by another. End quote. Napoleon's treasury secretary, Nicolas-François Molien, joked, quote, The occupation of king was too easy for him, so he also took on that of prime minister. End quote. In fact, under the Constitution, Napoleon was in charge of the Council of State, which had the power to initiate legislation, and was responsible for signing bills into law and enforcing them. So this joke was actually literally true. He really did take on the tasks traditionally associated with a monarch, as well as those that are usually undertaken by a head of government. On campaign, the emperor's normal working habits were often disrupted. As we've seen in past episodes, whenever possible, he commandeered suitable buildings to serve as temporary headquarters, the Charlottenburg Palace in Berlin during the campaign in Prussia, the Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna, etc. When that wasn't possible, he worked on the road, either in his carriage or in his personal tent. Napoleon's carriage was a model of engineering. In many ways, it was a miniature version of his office in Paris, complete with built-in bookshelves and cabinets for reports, writing materials, maps, and telescopes. He even traveled with a mobile library of over a thousand miniaturized books, although there wasn't space for them in the carriage, they traveled separately. Artists liked to depict Napoleon on horseback, but when he was on the road with his army, he was almost always in his carriage, so he could work as he traveled. Usually, he was accompanied by his faithful chief of staff, Berthier. The imperial carriage was not only a mobile office, it carried provisions, and had a special device built into the lamp that could be used to heat up food. There was even a roll-out bed in case the emperor had to spend the night inside, although there was just the one bed, so Berthier would have to make his own arrangements. The carriage was so heavy that it had to be equipped with special wheels, designed for the gun carriages of the heavy artillery. When the Grande Armée was in the field, Napoleon himself was almost always with them, just like his marshals and generals. But trailing a few miles behind the army was an organization known as the Imperial Camp. This was sort of a base camp for all of Napoleon's duties not related to the command of the army, sort of a mobile capital of the empire. It would be impractical and potentially dangerous to bring the entire edifice of the French government right to the front lines. But Napoleon did remain more or less in charge of the civil government when he was on campaign, so he needed his aides, documents, and reports near at hand. The imperial camp was a compromise that enabled him to do this. Conditions permitting, Napoleon could periodically drop back from the main body of the army to visit the imperial camp and attend to his civilian political duties, then ride back to the front. 
If something urgent came up at the Imperial camp, his political aides could easily reach him at army headquarters. This is always something important to keep in mind about Napoleon's generalship after 1799. Almost all of his opponents were completely devoted to a single task, defeating the Grande Armée. Meanwhile, Napoleon's attention was always divided. He had to manage the French government, conduct diplomacy, and direct other forces fighting on other fronts, on top of worrying about defeating whatever enemy army was before him. Even in a dictatorship, no one rules alone. As I hope I've demonstrated, Napoleon did exercise a surprising level of personal control over his empire, but none of it would have been possible without an extensive network of hard-working and loyal secretaries, politicians, and bureaucrats who were willing to act as his conduits. When it came to civilian politics, there was no one the emperor relied on more heavily than the arch-chancellor of the empire, Jean-Jacques Rigi de Cambacérès, and I think it's fair to say there was no one in the political system who served him better. In my opinion, Cambacérès is probably the single most underrated figure in the history of the First Empire. Almost all those who were close to Napoleon were elevated to almost legendary status in 19th century histories and popular culture. But despite being the second most important person in the government of the First Empire, Cambacérès has never really been part of the Napoleonic legend. In fact, it wasn't until the late 20th century that scholars really started waking up to his significance. Some of this was probably inevitable given his character. Cambacérès was never the type to seek the spotlight. He was, in fact, a very vain man, but it seems his ego was not at all tied up with his public profile. When it came to politics, Cambacérès was always obliging of others, almost to a fault. He didn't care who took the credit, and he didn't care who got to be the center of attention. Perhaps it was natural that once he was no longer in power, he was quickly forgotten. He was also a homosexual, a fact which was officially secret but known to almost everyone. Even British propaganda sometimes alluded to his proclivities. In the prudish, homophobic Victorian period, this probably helped dissuade many scholars from writing about him. It seems the only person Cambacérès really cared about impressing was Napoleon himself. The Arch-Chancellor loved awards and decorations. Bonaparte was well aware of this and showered his deputy with medals and official honors. Around Paris, Cambacérès was known for his somewhat idiosyncratic sense of style. He still wore a powdered wig which by the height of the empire had been out of fashion for over a decade, and really marked you out as a person of stodgy taste. His clothing tended to be old-fashioned, and he seemed to prefer very ornate and formal pieces, and of course, always accessorized with all those medals he loved so much. People talk about him walking through the Palais Royal, dressed like he was on his way to a formal state function, with his aides buzzing all around him, attracting a lot of attention, mostly in the form of ridicule. The modern equivalent might be wearing a tuxedo to a shopping mall. In many ways, Cambacérès and Napoleon were polar opposites. For one thing, Napoleon didn't enjoy wearing anything fancier than his colonel's uniform, but the differences went far deeper than that. Cambacérès knew how to enjoy life. He worked very hard, almost as hard as Napoleon, but he also had a lot of friends, and made time for a very active social life. He was well known for his love of fine food and expensive drinks. Every week, he held a banquet at his home with dozens of guests, 
serving huge, decadent, multi-course dinners with plenty of drinks to wash everything down. To emphasize, this was a weekly scheduled affair, not for any special occasion. Apparently, his bedroom was a constant revolving door of mostly much younger men. All of this was a stark contrast to the Emperor, who had an intense, serious personality, a melancholy streak, few close friends, and enjoyed a relatively Spartan lifestyle for a man of his station. But despite these outward differences in their personalities, under the surface, the two men were birds of a feather. To those who didn't know him well, Cambaceres probably came across as a lightweight, a man too focused on sensual pleasure to have much substance to him, but that couldn't have been further from the truth. In between his stints in government, Cambaceres had been one of the most successful business lawyers in the whole country. The richest and most powerful man in France had trusted him to settle their disputes and act on their behalf. During his time in the legislature, he had been so respected as a legal expert that he had managed to make himself indispensable, maintaining his position through successive, sometimes quite radical, changes in government. Even people who disagreed with Cambaceres ideologically wanted his counsel. Despite his love of parties and socializing, Cambaceres was actually a very cautious person by nature. He knew how to play the game and keep his head down. Cambaceres himself described how he survived all the ups and downs of the revolution. Quote, One has to know how to move with one century. I had to cede to the general movement and give myself over to the torrent of innovation. End quote. Those are not the words of a trifling lightweight. Cambaceres may have loved to cut loose, but he ran his professional life with iron discipline. In fact, even his lavish lifestyle was carefully calculated. From the very beginning of his career up until his retirement, he saved half his income annually. Every party, every fancy outfit, every sumptuous banquet, and every expensive bottle of booze was carefully accounted for. He knew how to make money and how to keep it, as well as how to spend it. His appetites were considerable, but never so overpowering that they led him to overspend or go into debt. Underneath that soft exterior, there was a very sharp, highly analytical mind. Cambaceres was the type of person who always saw the bigger picture, and was capable of interpreting it rationally, unburdened by bias or sentiment. Napoleon had the same type of mind, although he was also prone to anger and sometimes struggled with the unburdened by bias or sentiment part of that equation. Cambaceres was a perfect political partner for the emperor, a man who saw the world the same way, worked almost as hard as him, and had no real professional ambitions beyond doing his job well and pleasing the boss. Importantly, he was also one of the only people who was capable of reining in Napoleon's infamous temper. Interior Minister Chaptal, who we quoted from earlier in this episode, explained, quote, The only two people who succeeded in mitigating Bonaparte's rages were Cambaceres and Josephine. The former never attempted to confront or contradict his impetuous character directly. That would only have pushed him to greater violence. Rather, Cambaceres gave his fury a chance to develop. He gave him time to dictate the most iniquitous decrees. He prudently waited for the moment when that temper had spent itself, without constraint, to then offer his thoughtful reflections. And if he did not always succeed in getting the measure revoked, he frequently managed to soften it. I have often admired the calm and skill of Cambaceres in such matters, 
and several times I have seen him ward off great misfortunes. End quote. That is the perfect segue into one of the big drawbacks of the Napoleonic system. As I hope I've demonstrated in this episode, although Napoleon didn't personally run the country himself, he really did manage to make himself the leading figure in every facet of French politics, even when he was away on campaign. The emperor did have incredible talents, but I just read you a passage in which one of his own ministers explained that there were only two people in the world capable of reining in his explosive temper, and even Cambacérès was not always capable of getting him to countermand orders made in anger. Napoleon was nothing if not stubborn. He wanted to do everything himself, and almost always believed he knew best. That was often true. Bonaparte really did have incredible insight and perception. But no one is right all the time. And with his outsized influence over the government, when the emperor was wrong, the state was usually wrong with him. Hopefully this episode has put to rest any question of whether or not Napoleon's government was a dictatorship. You may agree or disagree with the things Napoleon did with his power, but there is no question that he exercised that power almost totally untrammeled, totally dominating the executive branch, which ruled over the rest of the government with no serious checks or balances. In many cases, the person who initiated draft legislation and the person who signed the legislation into law were the same. I don't know what you would call that other than a dictatorship. You might argue it was a benevolent dictatorship, but I don't think there's much room for serious debate over how to label this system. Autocratic governments seem to encourage a kind of lethargy in the people who serve them. Napoleon's minister of the navy and colonies, Denis de Cray, lamented that he and his fellow bureaucrats sometimes struggled to do anything under their own initiative. These were not incompetent people but they became so used to the guiding hand of the emperor that all their knowledge and experience seemed to desert them. They had become accustomed to following orders, conditioned by years of dictatorship to act like pet dogs, always following their master's lead. You might think that's a modern view, and to a certain extent, yes, that's true. As we discussed earlier in the episode, the idea of a very strong executive branch had some currency in the 19th century that it doesn't really have today. But this was a very common opinion among Napoleon's contemporary critics, both inside and outside France. These criticisms were not restricted to liberals and intellectuals. Many lenders and investors were troubled by this autocratic system. Anyone looking to lend money to a state or an institution wants to see openness and transparency in that body's budgeting process. Quite simply, it is risky to give money to someone without any knowledge of how they might spend it. Investors and creditors want their decisions to be informed by as much information as possible. Any of you who have ever applied for a mortgage or a personal loan knows what I'm talking about. The types of institutions that loaned money to states 200 years ago were no different. They wanted assurances that they would know where their money was going, and that there would be no sudden, arbitrary changes in spending. As I mentioned earlier, the deliberations of the French Council of State were secret, even to potential lenders. And with one man enjoying almost total authority over the government, the budgeting process was at the mercy of Napoleon's personal whims. This was not an attractive picture for those in the market for government bonds, or people in the business of loaning money to governments. 
compare Napoleonic France to Great Britain, where budgeting decisions were debated right out in the open in Parliament. In Britain, bondholders and lenders could actually exert some influence over individual members of Parliament, through the press, through the electoral process, and via unofficial channels. In France, the councillors of state were beholden only to Napoleon. So it's no wonder that throughout the Napoleonic Wars, Britain was much more attractive to investors and lenders. With its closed-off, personalized system, France was forced to rely largely on tax revenues to pay for spending, while the British could rely on the much more flexible and popular system of deficit spending. As strong and stable as the regime looked after the Treaty of Tilsit, there is a certain brittleness to any autocratic government. With Napoleon at the center of everything, the whole enterprise was built on his popularity. If that popularity began to erode, it would mean the foundation of the entire system of government eroding as well. As we've discussed in past episodes, Napoleon never really felt secure in his own popularity. This is part of the reason he worried about it so much. He knew his entire project depended on maintaining his reputation, that sense of omnipotence that he had crafted so carefully. He believed the key to public popularity was battlefield victories, and that without his popularity, the government would fall, and everything he and his comrades had fought for since the outbreak of war in 1792 would be for naught. And so, due to the nature of his rule over France, Bonaparte had a perverse incentive to keep fighting, no matter what. That fact is not very significant at this stage in our narrative, but it will definitely come up in the future. Before I go, I'd like to give credit to a few books I used in writing this episode. Napoleon and His Collaborators by Isser Wallach, and France Under Napoleon by Louis Bergeron. If you want to learn more about the Napoleonic government, those are great places to start. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Shannon Sellen. Shannon is actually a novelist, not an historian, but she has a blog with a ton of great posts about Napoleonic history, including one about the Emperor's working habits that was a huge help in finding sources for this episode. If you want to check it out, go to shannonsellen.com. Anyway, that's all for now. As always, thanks for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.